0: Every project, big or little, has to start somewhere. The plan of God is moving forward for the Israelites. They got back to Jerusalem. They've resettled, reestablished their homes. But chapter 3 has for us the opening phases of their work, and that is, first of all, to rebuild the altar And then secondly, to begin to build the foundation, or begin to build the temple by laying the foundation. Those are the two projects that chapter three tells us about. And on the one side, we're learning historical facts about what happened. It seems like the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was compiled many years later. And so it was a history book for the Israelites. But more than that, as we read the story, I think there are some helpful and important reminders and lessons for us regarding how it is that God moves work forward. We all have ideas and plans, and hopefully there are things for the glory of God. How do they come about? What are some, some helpful ingredients for getting God's work done? That's kind of how, not kind of, that's how I'm gonna phrase our time today. And as we start in verse one, in the opening verse, we see the first important aspect of work, and that is unity. Unity is a vital ingredient to getting work done. Look one more time at verse one. It says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. That's an expression that simply means they were characterized by unity. They gathered as one man. And it starts by telling us this was in the seventh month month the old testament jewish calendar the 7th month was called tishri it takes place during september and october the jews followed a lunar calendar so that's different than our calendar which is based on the sun so it's going to be offset a little bit just to give some context the 7th month is the beginning of the rainy season and it was the month that included the feast of trumpets at the beginning the day of atonement and the feast of booths also known as the feast of tabernacles The Feast of Booths is significant because it was one of the three pilgrimage feasts in which all the men of Israel were called to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So, this was a very special celebration because celebrating the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem was something that had not been done or was not even possible in the last 50 to 70 years. But they're back. Finally the people have come to celebrate, they're together to worship, and they are in the city that God has chosen for Himself. They gather as one man in Jerusalem. Unity is not only vital, it's it's powerful. There, there's a beauty to unity. It's something amazing to, to see and to experience. Whether that's a football team, whether that's an orchestra whether that's people setting up for a baby shower or a funeral, there's something about orchestrating people coming together to do one task. There's power there. There's strength. It's not always a good thing. In the Tower of Babel, the unity of the people was coming together to build a tower for their own glory. They were disobeying God's commands. But here we have unity working for something that pleases and honors God. This is the group that I'm sure they had bonded. They traveled from Babylon, three to five months worth of travel, maybe eight to 900 miles. And here they are in Jerusalem. They've got work to do, and you can imagine how hard it would be to move forward in work if they weren't united. You might have experienced something like that with the project at school, or projects at work, or even planning events in your family. If people don't have a united mind to accomplish a common objective, it can get very difficult to accomplish a task. Well, I don't want them to be invited. I don't want them to be invited. And now you've got family drama. They're not there. They have unity. There's energy. There's there's progress that's going to come as a result. And just pausing there to think about ourselves as a New Testament church, we, we have to know that unity is an important aspect of our mission. It's part of what Christ wants to accomplish in us. Let me just read from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Some of you know this, John 17, 22 and 23. Jesus says to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they, my disciples, may be one even as we are one. I in them, Jesus says, and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus cares about his people living in unity. On the one hand, we are united in Christ. That's a spiritual unity. That's an eternal unity. But there's also a practical unity that we're called to express and enhance. My wife and I are married. That doesn't change. But the experience of that changes depending on seasons or disagreements. The same is true for a church. We are united in Christ, but the command in Ephesians four is to preserve the bond of unity. That's not talking about our bond with Christ, that's unbreakable. It's the visible, practical expression of our unity. And according to Jesus, unity is a testimony to the world of who he really is and it's a testimony to the world of the love of God. So our unity is the result of the unity within the Trinity, but it's also a reflection of the unity within God himself. One day we know we will be perfectly united. Christ's prayer will be answered. We will be perfectly one. We will attain, Paul says, the unity of the faith. But until that day, for the glory of God, we're called to preserve the unity. We're called to portray the unity that we have there's a bunch of passages that could be mentioned. I only want to point out one to you from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This is what he says to the church. The Apostle Paul says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit." with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Lord willing, next week we'll get to Ezra 4 and we'll deal with the opponents to the work of the Israelites. But when any difficulty comes, any type of barrier or opposition comes, what, a, what an important and what a valuable thing it is if the people are united And we have to understand that. God has not called us as a church to build a building. We already have a building. But even if we were building a building, it's not the same kind of work that the Israelites have. They have a mandate from God. They would be sinning if they didn't build the building. But we are called to live a life for the glory of God that proclaims his excellencies to those around us. And it is not the intention of God that any of us do that alone. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulty and challenges and barriers. But to the degree that you are connected with others in the church, you will be helped to move forward. I've talked to a number of people in our church. Some of you may have grown up in the Catholic church, and their experience is you show up, you listen to a sermon, you go home, you talk to nobody. That is not God's design. That is not a flock. That is not a family united God would have you know you're not alone in the work he's given you to do. And if we're not alone, we don't want to live like we are. Talk to someone. Connect to them. That's part of the goals of even the family life groups. You get into someone's house. You, you have a meal with someone. Unity is such an important element in moving forward in the task God has given us. You have, all of us have problems. Marriage problems, problems with kids, problems with the home, problems with finances, whatever. We do this Together, that's God's intent. That's the power of unity. As we come to verse two, we see a second component important for moving God's work forward, and that is leadership. Good work needs unity, and good work needs leadership. Look at verse two. Then, so while they're they're all in their homes, everything's established, then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So here are two main names that we'll see in this first group of people that came back to Israel. We have Jeshua. he's the religious leader. He's also known as Joshua. He's a priest. Zerubbabel is a civic leader. He's actually in the line of David. He's recognized as a leader among the people, but though he's not a king, there's no official title that seems to be given to him. Joshua and Zerubbabel, notice one more time, the verb used there for them. What did they do? Verse two again. Then they arose. They, they, the word means to get up. So It's now the seventh month of the year. Everyone's in their homes. And if you will, you can imagine everybody's in their homes enjoying their new home in Israel. We made it. We're here. But they got up. It wasn't just about excitement and unity of the people. These men took initiative, and that's something that leaders provide. Leaders take the first step. Leaders are responsible to, to get the ball rolling A good leader is not someone who just sits back and points a finger and tells you what to do. A good leader is one who is in the work. He's willing to do it himself, and and, and maybe more importantly, a good leader understands what it is that needs to be done first. In other words, a good leader will be marked by initiative, but a good leader will also be marked by priorities. It's wisdom to know when to act, and it's wisdom to know how. To act. I saw a news story yesterday that uh, one California congressman has introduced a new bill to Congress that would prohibit the sale, the distribution, and the use of glue traps to deal with mice and rats. Regardless of how you feel about glue traps, you at least have to wonder if that is something worthy of the time and the energy. And the money that Congress has. Is that what should be our primary focus? Well, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they know what needs to be done first. They have the proper priorities. They step up, and they, with their families, rebuild the altar. This was a stone altar. That's where the animals are sacrificed. From what we can tell historically, and even in parts of Scripture, there was an altar already there in Jerusalem. But it was no longer an altar dedicated to the one true God. It was being used by the foreigners. Assyrians had brought in foreigners. The Babylonians had brought in foreigners so that the land would be filled with people. But they weren't worshiping Yahweh. And even if they were worshiping Yahweh, they were worshiping him as one of the many gods that they worshiped. This was an impure altar. It needed to be made new. So, Jeshua the priest and Zerubbabel the leader They understood that the first priority of the people was worship. One more time, at the end of verse 2, it says they restored it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They needed to honor God, not in their own way, but in the way that he had told them to honor him. This is something that very easily relates to leadership in church today because the leaders in a local church are the pastors, the elders, and their responsibility, like Jesus said to Peter, is to feed the sheep. Tend the flock. How do you do that? You teach the word of God. That's what uh, Paul told Timothy. Preach the word in season and out of season. Be immersed in these things. That is the non-negotiable aspect of biblical leadership. You point people to, and then you help them follow the word of God. That's the responsibility of an elder. Men, that's your responsibility as a husband, as a father. You bring the word of God. Ephesians 5 says you model Christ by who washed his bride in the word of God. And just like with Israel, the priority and the motive behind everything we do is worship. That's the overarching goal of your life. And it should be the overarching goal of of our church. It's it's worship. We are here to worship God. The, The specific mission the church has been given is to disciple and to evangelize. But the purpose behind those things is worship. Jesus told the woman at the well, the father is seeking Worshippers, When we evangelize, we're telling people who don't know God how they can know and truly worship God through Jesus Christ. In discipleship, we're helping one another worship better. Worship is not just a Sunday morning thing. Oh, worship was nice this morning. It's not just that. It's your whole life. Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Everything points back to worship. John Piper once said missions, it applies to evangelism, but evangelism or missions, he says, exists because worship does not. Hopefully that makes sense. Missions exists because worship does not. There are people who don't know God. They don't worship him properly. And so in evangelism and missions, we give them the truth so that God is worshiped. We tell people about Christ. We want people to grow in Christ, not because we're earning points, not because we're trying to earn, earn a na- make a name for ourselves or for our church. We do it because we want God to be worshiped. It's for his glory. And that's something we have to allow to sink into our hearts and we need to remind each other about because we forget so easily. Everything in life is intended to be an expression of worship, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. From the moment you wake up, Your initial thoughts are to be those of worship. You start making breakfast, it's to be an expression of worship. Lord, I'm gonna drive to work right now. I'm gonna do it as an expression of worship. Lord, I'm gonna sit down and do my job. Let me do it with an attitude of worship. We're not killing animals anymore as the people of God. So, what's our worship? Well, as we read this morning, Christ has died, He's the once for all sacrifice. But what do we do to to, to show God our appreciation, to serve him? Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the goal. Worship God. The church of Christ is to be unified in a life of worship, and that's what united this generation of Israelites Unity, apart from God's instruction, is at best meaningless, at worst dangerous. Again, the Tower of Babel. They're united to do something that dishonors God. So when Zerubbabel and Jeshua stood up and they rebuild the altar, what they're doing is restoring true worship. They're restoring obedience to the law of God. Restoring the altar is also what enabled the people to call out to God when they needed help. Because God was not going to hear their prayers. God was not going to accept them unless they gave appropriate worship, which is laid out in the law of Moses. So verse three continues. It says, they set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Some people, some translations say despite the fear. Other translations say it's because of the fear. It could be that because they knew there's opposition, we got to get the altar done because that's what's going to enable us to be successful with these opposing people. They offered burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord. Burnt offerings, morning and evening. Verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. And they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Verse 5, and after that, the regular burnt offerings. The offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord. And the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. The altar matters. The people needed to be right with God. And you have the reference there to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles lasts a week. I've always thought, if we had that today, kids would love it. You're not allowed to live in your home for a week. You, built, you take a tent and you put it in the streets or in your backyard and you live there for a week or they had booths. They would take branches and make themselves little booths to live in for a week. Why? It was a reminder that God had freed them from Israel and then for 40 years they were sustained in the wilderness while they lived outside you can read all about the Feast of Booths in Leviticus 23. He describes how that should work and the first days of solemn assembly, and the last days of solemn assembly, and what they are due to sacrifices. Also significant, though, is that the Feast of Booths was the time of year when Solomon's temple was dedicated. And you can read that in 1 Kings chapter 8. This generation, I assume, they know their history. They know the word of God. So they would have gathered to celebrate the Feast of Booths and understood the significance. We are here to rebuild the temple that Solomon built. It's also the time of year where the the harvest had just finished. And that would have been another reminder of God's provision. And so for that, they praised the Lord. There's a new altar in place. God is restoring us. God is reconciling us to himself. So we praise him. But even in that, there's a certain frustration. Something's missing. The work isn't done yet. One more time, verse six. It says, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Good. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Here's a third component for doing God's work well, and that is perspective. Perspective. If you want to do God's work well, you need unity. You need leaders. Leaders provide initiative. Leaders give priorities. But we also need the proper perspective. We can and we should celebrate the good things that have happened But we can't assume the work is done. The people are celebrating, but there's a somber note. The foundation of the temple has not yet been laid. Again, there's a reason to celebrate, but there's still more work to do. We'll come back to this uh, at the end. For now, we're going to move on to the next phase, which is now the foundation. How does that Move forward. It's not just a little layer of concrete. Those of you who build no foundation, you've got to go deep. You have to be able to have a foundation that sustains the building that is to come. Verse 7 They take action. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, those who work with stones and wood. They gave food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This was all authorized. None of, this was, none of this was hidden. Remember they came, and what did they give from the people? Gold and silver. What did that go to? To establish their homes and to pay for the temple. And, and, and there's a lot of language here that parallels or mirrors what happened when Solomon dedicated the temple or built the temple. Tyre and Sidon are in the north. Both cities are up against the, the Mediterranean coast. They have cedar trees, And the easiest way to transport them, since they're on the coast, is to take it to the boat, bring it down. It lands in Joppa, that's in the north of Israel, and then they bring it down to Jerusalem. Construction for the temple, though, has to wait. You have to wait till all these supplies arrive. And we get to verse 8, and we find that it's now five months later. It says it's the second month of the second year. The beginning of the chapter says the seventh month of the first year. Verse eight. In the second year after their sec- after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning. There again is the leadership, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Again, unity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Comes back to the value of good leadership. It's not just if they said, Look, guys, just build us a temple, make it look nice, I'll come back in six months and see how it went. That's not the plan. They put people in charge. 20 years old and upward, you're a Levite. These are the ones God had appointed to be in charge of the temple. You are going to supervise the work. That's what it says in verse eight. That's what it says in verse nine. Twice that word comes up. They're there to supervise. How many of you enjoy having a supervisor? Supervisors get a bad reputation in our culture. There are very bad supervisors. But we also have to admit that our disdain for supervision is usually tied to our own pride. Good work needs good supervision. I think that's especially true in construction. It's easy to milk the clock, waste time. You can ask, Derek's not here, ask Bruno, ask Derek, ask any of the guys in the church who build big projects. Someone has to supervise the work. It's a lot better to have a team work on a big project, and part of the team means someone has to supervise. Everybody at McDonald's has a job description. But there's still a manager there, right? It's not just so Karen has someone to talk to. It's someone there to make sure that everybody's doing their job. You need a supervisor. Yesterday, I put a load of laundry in. And ours, it was a front load, so I pull out a little tray, put the soap in there, put the clothes in there, turn the machine on. And then two minutes later, I come back and I realize I never pushed the soap tray back in. So it, it would have it washed the whole load with just water. I didn't do it on purpose. But I just it's only two minutes, so you push it and it's fine. Mistakes happen, right? Mistakes happen in any job. Supervisors are in place because there are lazy people who aren't going to do their job. But you also have well-meaning people who need a second set of eyes. That's what a supervisor does. Supervision enables good work to move forward. You don't get the picture that these supervisors said, all right, here's the law of Moses, you got it, here's a scroll, just do whatever it says in there, I'll be back in six months again. No. They would have been there watching, helping the work move forward. On the one hand, we assume they weren't micromanaging. On the other hand, they weren't leading from a distance, like, oh, binoculars, yeah, the work seems to be going well, we're fine. They're there. I saw, uh, I guess it was a story, but the the clip of, I think it was a 49er DB. His coach pulled him aside and he shows him video and he says, look, look, he's gonna do this, he's gonna do that, and then you're there. And then he he gets an interception like the that drive. And they're saying, that's coaching. The coach can't do that and he's old. And the player can't see what the coach is saying. You need supervision Supervisors are there to make sure all the workers have what they need to be successful. And when the supervisor does his job right, the work moves forward and the people feel good about what's happening. That's what good leadership brings. That's what good supervision accomplishes. Well, because of their roles, the day finally comes when the foundation of the temple is complete. And this is the end of the chapter. The altar is complete. Now the foundation has been laid and the response of the people is great joy. Look at verse 10. I'm gonna to read to the end of the chapter. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David David. King of Israel. Again, there you see back to the law. We're going to worship God the way he said. David gave us instruction. That's what we're going to do. Verse 11. And they sang responsively, one chorus and another chorus, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. They said, "For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout. And the sound was heard far away. This was a thunderous Celebration. Some of you don't like the music to be up too loud. That was not this day. Too bad for you that day. The Levites are dressed the way Moses had told them with jewels and the proper vestments. And they're there with trumpets designed by God to pierce the air as they play. The sons of Asaph are there with cymbals to clash. And a choir of Levitical men is singing as loudly as they can. Why? Why? Because they are recognizing the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's what verse 11 says. That's the the quote. That's the song. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That phrase, steadfast love, New American Standard says loving kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's a word that means loyal love, steadfast love. It's tied to a covenant-keeping love. God had been faithful to his word. My people went away into Babylon. They were exiled, but if they call unto me, I will bring them back. They will be restored, and that's what we're remembering. God is good. But even in this celebration, just like with the altar, there's a sour note. Remember the third word, the third ingredient for the work of God? You need unity, you need leadership, but there's also supposed to be a perspective The joy is tempered a little bit. The Israelites had good reason to celebrate, but again, a a somber note is there. There is, tied to the element of joy, an element of dissatisfaction, an element of incompleteness. The young men are celebrating look what we've done look how far the foundation is a major step it's kind of like if you ever painted a room painting is the fun part it's the prep work that hurts sand prepare tape now i can paint you know that's the foundation all that work goes in to make sure it's ready and they're celebrating rightfully this is what god has allowed us to do but the older men They had to have been old enough to see the temple and remember it. So, at least 10 years old. Maybe they're as old as 20 years old. They've been gone for 50 years. So, these are the men over 60, over 70 who made the trip back. They're not celebrating, they're weeping. Why? It says there they remembered the glory of the temple in the time of Solomon. This beautiful, glorious temple had been stripped and broken down because of Israel's disobedience. So it's possible that these men are weeping because remembering the old temple reminded them of their sin. This could be the sorrow of repentance. But I think it's something else. I think it is a tearful awareness that they're nowhere near what they used to have the picture they have in their mind is still so far from what they have. All they have is a foundation. The men are celebrating. We had nothing. Look what we have. The older man said, look what we used to have. Think about this. We're we're not there yet. And there is something about age that tempers the unrestricted joy of the young, isn't there? I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's part of wisdom. You see little kids celebrate a birthday party and they have food and cake and presents. And mom and dad smile because they're enjoying the party. But oh, the joy of a child who doesn't understand the party's gonna end. There's gonna be a room to clean up with more toys. All this food has to be put away. All these decorations have to be put away. This celebration is going to end. And the same happens with young couples. There's a wedding or a baby on the way, they're in love, they're expecting all kinds of good things and everybody's smiling and we smile with them. The older couples, they're smiling as well. It's a day to celebrate. But those who've been married longer know that marriage is also work. You are embarking on the adventure and the journey of marriage and there will be some very, very high, joyful times and there will be some difficult times Downs, right? That's life. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I don't think we want to be there. But the lesson I think is that we don't want to be whimsical optimists either. Just, oh, it's always going to be good and we're going to be great. And this is not real life. Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time to laugh, there's a time to build, and there's a time to weep and a time to tear down. That's part of life. So we can also think about that in terms of us today as a church of Jesus Christ. We should celebrate the things we see God is doing. People are coming to faith. You you invite someone to church, and you invite someone to church, and they finally come. Praise God, they came. We see people come to Christ. We see people be baptized. We see people maturing in their faith. Those are amazing things, and we ought to glorify God. But none of that ever means that we get to sit back and be done with the work, right? Right? That's the perspective we have to keep in mind. There's still work to do. The job's not finished. As a church, we don't get to sit back and say, oh, Jimmy, I remember the musicals. I remember last summer we did a kids' summer thing. It was wonderful. We have photos. Show the video again. We never have to do it again. You don't get to say in your own life, I remember I went to a conference 10 years ago. Oh, I learned so much. It was such a beautiful conference. And that's the extent of my Christian growth. We don't get to sit back in the goodness of God and then do nothing else. It is good to celebrate what God has done and is doing, but that never means we're done with the work. There's always more to do, right? That's a proper perspective. What is the standard of Christian life? It's Christ. The standard of our church is is heaven. Do you look like Christ? Does our church look like heaven? No, we fall short. Paul said that was his goal. Paul saw heathen idolaters come to know Christ. And he celebrated, praise God. But he said, my goal is to present them mature in Christ. When they look like Christ, then my job is done. So it didn't matter how much the people grew. He wasn't done until they looked like Christ. So do you look like Jesus yet? Does the person next to you look like Jesus? Do your kids look like Jesus? None of us do. So there's more work to do. And in that perspective, knowing that Christ will give us the victory, he will also help us to keep moving forward. And that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. You will be given victory over death. Praise be to God who gives us victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. Victory. We win. And then he says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That's our mission. That's the perspective we have. Celebrate the good things, but know that the work's not done yet. Ezra 3 ends with a group of Israelites ready to move forward with God's plan. Opposition is coming. That's chapter 4. But they're ready to get this work done. Why? Because their desire is that the God whom they had abandoned would now dwell with them once again. This temple, we want to be complete so God will dwell among us and we will see his glory. And may we have the same heart as we move forward for the glory of Christ. We want to see the glory of Christ in our lives and the lives of people we minister to. Let's pray. Father, we rightly want to celebrate the good things that you have done from the first day of the church. Now, 2,000 years later, you have preserved generations. You have used men and women to bring the gospel to us so we would hear and know. And you're using the same gospel to grow as you are bearing fruit. And we're grateful for the times that we have been able to see and experience unity in the church. And do great things for the glory of Christ. We're grateful for the men and women you have used to bring as leaders, to give initiative and direction and wisdom, to help us worship you rightly. But in all of this, we pray you would give us the proper perspective, never content with what has happened, but always seeking to know Christ, that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Father, you have given us an an upward call. You've told us to set our eyes on Christ. Help us do that. And help us continue working for the glory of his name. Amen.